Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Hebrews chapter 12, the word of the Lord reads, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the word of the Lord. John Owen, the Puritan theologian, once wrote, there is no inconsistency between spiritual joy in Christ and sorrow for sin. So I just want to welcome you all back to um, part three, part four, going backwards here, part four, uh, which is the final part of our series, which we have titled Faith and Hope, which is based on the book of Hebrews, specifically Hebrews chapter 11, verse one, which says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Now, the reason why that we are in this series in the first place is actually very simple. We live in a world that rejects uh, faith and not just that, but they are hostile to faith. And, 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 and there's a tremendous amount of pressure right now for people all over the world to either reject their faith in Christ or at least to compromise the doctrines of faith that are controversial and offensive to the rest of the world. And the reason why the book of, of Hebrews is relevant to us and the reason why we look to it for the answers that we're seeking is because uh, the Jewish Christians who the letter was written to faced the same kind of persecution. They were under a great deal of pressure to either walk away from their faith altogether or at least to compromise the doctrines that offended those people that were around them. And so in week one, of this series, we examined what the Apostle Paul said that faith really is. He said that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. Faith is not some nebulous kind of wish, you know, in something that's impossible. It's not the suspension of reality in order for us to believe in something that's completely unbelievable. But instead, faith is much more tangible than that. It is much more real than that. Faith in God is always a response to not myths or legends, but truth and reality. Faith in God is always a response to truth and reality. Faith is the assurance, uh, the God-given assurance for things that are hoped for and the rock-solid conviction of the things that are not seen. Faith is not simply a suspension of reality. It's actually a confirmation of reality. It's a confirmation of the truth. We have faith in God because God has proven himself faithful throughout history. And then week two, we talked about why we can have confidence in this kind of faith. And the reason why we can have confidence is not because of who we are, all right, but because of the object that we have faith in. The object of our faith is what gives us confidence. And the object of our faith is none other than Jesus Christ. And this is important because Jesus was not just some man. Jesus was not some angel. He was not a created being. Jesus is the eternal God who came in the flesh. As the Apostle John says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
Jesus is the object of our faith. He is God in the flesh. That is who we place our trust in. And Christ died on the cross to set us free and then rose again as a historical fact, proving that he is what he claimed to be and that he can do what he promised he would do, which is to save us from our sins. And so in the first week, we talked about what faith is. In the second week, we talked about the object of our faith, you know, who he is. And then last week, we talked about what faith in Christ has done for us. What has it accomplished for us? You see, it is through faith in Christ that we receive not just forgiveness of our sins, but we are also brought into an up-close, life-saving relationship with God. The barriers between God and man, those barriers have been torn down by Christ. The walls have been removed between us and God. The veil has been ripped in two. And so by faith, we're able to go confidently to God. We're able to go right to the throne of grace and into the presence of God himself. In fact, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us. There's no longer a building that you have to go to to be in the presence of God. We are the building. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit, as the word of God tells us. And God is with us wherever we go. You see, for thousands of years, people had to go to a temple to be near God, and then the select few that actually got to go into his visible presence had to go in there with fear and trembling, worried that God might kill them if they made a mistake or, or slipped or sinned. But, but through faith in Christ, we are invited into the presence of God, not as horrified, worried subjects, but we are welcomed like beloved family members. See, our faith is real. The object of our faith is rock solid, and our faith gives us unlimited access to God of the universe without any fear, right? And that's what we've talked about so far, but today, we're going to talk about what our faith urges us to do. Because let's face it, faith is not simply an inactive belief in something. It's not simply just a wish. Like, I believe that tomorrow is going to be a better day, because you really just don't know if it is going to be better or not. Faith is not an idle, irreverent belief, right? I believe that blue is better than yellow. I believe the Dodgers are going to win the World Series. They believe that, that dogs make better pets than cats, right? Okay, these are just beliefs that have no real force in the world around us. Okay? They're just opinions. They're just things that we believe, right? They're, they're irrelevant, and we all have them. We all have these kinds of beliefs, but they really don't have any force in our lives, Right? That is not what faith is. Faith is actually more than just believing. Faith is not idle. Faith is active. It is in motion. It is, it is ongoing. When you put your faith in Christ, you're not, what you're doing is you're saying, is I, I'm not, I don't just believe in a man from history. What you're actually doing is you're actively trusting in him. When you, when you put your faith in Christ, you're placing your hope in Jesus. You are actively depending upon him. Right? This is something we have to understand. And all of this has implications for our, for our life because if you have that kind of faith, your life is directly connected to Christ because you are depending upon him for your salvation. You are depending on him for life. Right? You're not depending upon yourself and your own efforts to give your life meaning. You're depending on Christ to do that. When you have faith, you're not depending on what the world has to offer you to give you hope. You're depending on Jesus for that. That kind of faith, that kind of dependence shapes our actual world, right? The way that, well, in fact, one of the definitions that I really love about faith, one of the ones that I cling to is that faith is belief in action. 
Faith is believe in action. Faith is, a, it, it, faith is a belief that translates into some form of activity or action. I believe that Jesus died for my sins, so I trust in him. I believe that Christ rose again from the grave, so I hope in him. I believe that God created all things, including me, so I depend upon him and I obey him. I believe that there's joy to be had in the presence of God, so I study my Bible and I pray so I can get closer to him. I believe that I was made in the image of God, so I strive to be a reflection of him. Our faith always urges us on towards action. Our faith compels us to take action. And in this letter to the Hebrews, Paul helps us to see that. So let's, let's look again at Hebrews chapter 12. He says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, when we look at this text, the first thing that you have to notice is the word therefore. As we talked about last week, that word therefore is a connecting word. It connects what the author or the speaker has already said to what he is about to say. For instance, if I said to you, therefore drink lots of water, you might think, okay, drinking lots of water is probably good advice, but what's your point? You know, why are you telling me this? Well, my, my point is actually in the context of what I said before the word therefore. But if I said to you, this week's going to be over 100 degrees and you're going to be physically working in the sun, therefore, drink lots of water, suddenly the message becomes more urgent. Suddenly this message isn't just about some general health advice. It's actually very important. It could be actually life-saving information. Therefore is a word that connects ideas together to their context. And so this word's important. Paul says, therefore since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. This is actually one long run-on sentence. I don't you know that. But Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That is what he said after the word, therefore. Two verses, one long run-on sentence. All right, there's a lot here. So what is it? So that's what he said after. What is it that he actually said before? Well, if you will remember, what is the purpose of this letter? The purpose of the letter to the Hebrews is to encourage believers to stand strong in their faith in Christ in spite of the persecution that they are facing, not just from the Romans and not just from their oppressors, but also from their own people. These Jewish Christians were being persecuted by their countrymen. They were being persecuted by their neighbors and even their own family members and their friends because of their faith in Christ. Paul writes this letter to urge them to stand strong in their faith. And in chapter 11, Paul defines what faith is. In fact, he says, as we've talked about, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation or approval from God. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God and that what is seen was made out of things that are... what, what, what it, that what is seen is not made out of things that are visible. So Paul offers this definition of faith 
right? And then he follows that up by telling us and going through a list of people throughout history who have lived and walked by that kind of faith. Each of these people have been trusting God for a promise, each of them facing their own trials, each of them facing their own form of suffering. In fact, at the, uh, near the end of chapter 11, Paul says, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. Right? They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, and, some, and of whom the world is not worthy uh, wandering about in the deserts and mountains and in the dens and caves of the earth. All of these people suffered because of their faith. All of these people suffered because of their faith. But each one of them walked boldly by faith. Persecution didn't keep them from being faithful. Hardship did not snuff out the flames of their faith. And then Paul wraps up the chapter 11 with, and all these were commended through their faith. Although all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. They didn't receive the final promise that God has given. Since God has provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. All of these people walked by faith. They lived by faith. Even though in this life, in their life, they did not receive the fulfillment of God's promise because God's ultimate promise is not to make their life perfect. His promise is to restore his creation. His promise was to make all things right. His promise was that he would wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. These people walked by faith and they trusted God but they had not experienced that promise yet because God was not going to fulfill that promise without us. And then Paul says, therefore, therefore, in light of this, in light of those who, who, who have endured you know, for their faith, they've endured persecution, in light of that, right? In light of those people who are waiting for the fulfillment of this promise, in light of all of that, therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. All right, now, Let's just take this apart because, again, there's a lot here. It's a one long run-on sentence, all right? That's it. Paul says, therefore, all right, since we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, okay, in light of what faith is, in light of those who live by faith in spite of their persecution and their trials, since we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, since we have, been, we have so many people who've gone before us who now bear witness to us by their lives, of the goodness of God, even in times of trouble, people that we can look to as examples of what faith is, Paul says, let us. Okay, now this is important because this is, because this is Paul connecting his ideas together. Paul, with this phrase, let us, is now moving from theological to practical. Paul is moving from what you need to know to what you need to do. And what he says is this. 
Now that you know what faith is, now that you know that there have been people, they've been, many of them have gone before you who have suffered for faith, but continue to live by faith even though they haven't received the promise yet, now that you see the promise is worthy of suffering for and waiting on, let us do something, okay? And you have to understand, right? Faith is, is, is worth suffering for, right? Let us do something about it. And what Paul is saying here, he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. You see, in this part of the text here, Paul is saying that in light of what faith is, in light of the examples from history, in light of God's promise, let us take action, do four things. He says, number one, lay aside every weight. Number two, lay aside sin that clings so closely. Number three, let us run with endurance the race before us. Number four, let us look to Jesus. That's what he's saying here. He gives us four things that you need to do in light of what faith is. In fact, let's look at these one by one so you can kind of like unpack this. The first one is to lay aside every weight. Now that is, now that's what he says here, but, but this word here for weight is the Greek word that's right here, all right? And it's pronounced onkos, all right? And what this word literally means, it means bulk, it means mass. And, and it comes with the idea that, that, um, that, that something is heavy or something is a burden, Right? It's something that weighs you down. In fact, the NIV translates the phrase this way, let us throw off everything that hinders. The New Living Translation says, let us strip off every weight that slows us down. Right? The text gives us the idea of getting rid of anything that weighs us down. Now, you have to understand at this time, when, when people per participated in races in Greek culture, right, they took everything off. They ran in the nude. They did not want any added weights at all to slow them down. They got rid of everything that weighed them down. And Paul uses this imagery to communicate something that's really, really important. What he says is to lay aside every weight. Let us put down everything that weighs us down. Let, it, let, every, let us put down all of our burdens. Let us get rid of all of these things that weigh us down. Well, what do you think that Paul's referring to here? What do you think that Paul is saying that's weighing these Jewish Christians down? Right? What is this weight that he's talking about? Well, John MacArthur gives us a clue when he says the main encumbrance that was weighing down the Hebrews was the Levitical system and its stifling legalism. You see, these Jewish Christians grew up under, under the Jewish law, the Levitical system, and it was administered by Pharisees. Right? And, these, and, these, and Judaism had become this kind of long list of things that you need to do and things that you don't need to do. And it wasn't about faith in God. It was just simply about obeying the rules all the time. It wasn't about a relationship with God. It was about keeping the law. But this old system was dead because, because it couldn't produce any life. It couldn't make you right with God. All it could do was make you miserable, right? All it could do is make you burdened to try to keep up with the rules. And what is worse, to keep all the rules, all right, right, all these things only reinforce for you how broken and worthless you are, right? It, it could truly weigh down a person. And Paul says to put that away, put that burden down, get rid of it, stop carrying it, drop it off, right? 
All it's doing is slowing you down. That's what he's saying here. Now, how does that apply to us in our time? Because we're not under the Levitical system. We're not Jewish, right? So how does this apply to us? Well, this applies to us in a really important way because many Christians forget that it is by faith that they are saved. Many Christians forget that they're saved by faith and it's by faith that they enter into an intimate, up-close, personal relationship with God. But for some reason, the guilt of their past, the, the guilt of their struggles with sin, even in the present time, makes them feel like they're unworthy. Right? They feel like they don't deserve to be part of God's family. They don't deserve to be in the presence of God. They don't deserve forgiveness. Right? They don't deserve um, they don't deserve for God to, to look down upon them. And they look at all the things that they've done wrong and all the things that they're doing wrong, right? And all the things that they continue to mess up as proof of that. But Paul says, uh, put that down, right? Put that burden down. I mean, because the truth is, you are not deserving, all right, to be a part of God's family. You don't deserve to be in his presence. You don't deserve right, to, for God to forgive you. But that's okay, because it's not about you anyway. It's about Jesus, right? You see, your relationship with God is not about what you do for God, and it never has been. It's about what Jesus has done for you, your part. Your part is to trust in Jesus, to bring, you know, to, that all that you can bring to the table is your faith in Jesus Christ. That is it, So put down the burden so it doesn't keep you from effectively. Paul says to lay aside every weight and lay aside uh, every sin that clings so closely. Now, in this context here, what Paul is talking primarily about when he talks about sin is the sin of unbelief. Because, because the Jews here were struggling to believe enough to let go of the Levitical system. And this tends to, be, uh, this tends to trip them up as they try to embrace you know, their faith. And Paul says that, that you have to, to lay that down too. You have to, com- you have to completely believe in Christ. But Paul is not exclusively talking about just the sin of unbelief here. He's also talking about other sins as well. You see, Paul says, lay aside the sins that cling closely to you. This language actually has a specific meaning here. <clears throat> the NIV calls this sin... Right? Sin that, that so easily entangles. The, the New Living T- Translation calls it the sin that easily trips us up. And the idea here is sin is a hindrance to us. Sin causes us to stumble and to fall. And we know that's right because we've all experienced that, every one of us. We know right, that sin, if we allow it into our lives, can derail us. It can take us off track. It can even create huge, huge problems in our lives. And so Paul, you know, first of all says, lay the guilt aside. Then he says, lay aside your desire to make yourself right by following the law, right? right? Paul says, lay aside your desire to make yourself right by following the law. And then he says, lay aside the sin that causes you to stumble. Now you might think about this for a second. On the one hand, he says, get rid of the legalism, get rid of the rules, get rid of all the rules that you're following that's weighing you down. And then he says, on the other hand, get rid of the sin that causes you to stumble, and this right here actually creates a tension point uh, for many people because they think, you know, well, wait a minute. Paul says, don't worry about trying to keep the law. But on the other hand, he says, don't let sin weigh you down. But isn't, 
sin where we fail to keep the law, right? I, I, I mean, do I obey or do I not obey? Do I follow the law? Or do I not follow the law? Am I free or am I, you know, am I bound to, to follow the law in obedience? And, and this right here is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian because this is the tension right here between grace and truth that we talk about all the time, right? This is where we have a, a very simple answer, right? When you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you are saved not because of what you do. You're saved because of what Christ has already done for you. If that's the truth, that's the truth that you need to hold on to and come back to over and over again. You're not saved because of what you do. You're saved because of what Christ has already done for you. You were set free from your sin and the, and the penalty of that sin. And your acceptance by God has nothing to do with what you can do for God. It's already about what God, through Christ, has already done for you. However, when you authentically put your faith in Christ, when you truly trust in Jesus to be your Savior, God the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you, which means something about you has changed. And what that means is if you truly love Christ, and you're truly depending on Him for your salvation... As time goes on, the Holy Spirit will begin to make you more and more like Jesus. Romans 8.29 tells us, Paul says, he says for us, uh, he says, for those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn of many brothers. Well, if we're conformed into the image of Christ, then naturally we will grow to be more and more like him and different from who we are right now. We will grow to, to love the things that Jesus loves. We will grow to hate the, the things that God hates if we're being made into the image of Christ. And let me just tell you what God hates. He hates sin. He hates it. Sin is vile to God. God hates it because it's destructive to his creation. So when Paul says, put away sin, he isn't saying you need to stop sinning so God will accept you, Right? He's just saying, stop sinning so you can obey the law. He's saying, put away that sin that causes you to stumble and fall. Put away that sin so it doesn't get in the way of your relationship with God. Put away that sin so you don't end up destroying your life or your family's life. The truth is you're free from the bondage of the law, but don't let yourself become enslaved to sin because it'll just trip you up. And so Paul says, let us lay aside every weight and sin which closely clings so closely. And then he says, number three, let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. Now this right here, this is the part of the text that we need to become very sober-minded about. This is the part, if, if anything that we hear and you remember, this is the part that I think that we need to come really um, clear about. And we need to put aside some myths and misconceptions about the Christian faith. Because in this text, there are some key words that, that we really need to deal with and we need to take to heart. All right? And the words are endurance and race. Now, the word for endurance is this word, upamine. All right? Thank you for the Blue Letter Bible, by the way, who helps me with these pronunciations. Upamine. All right? And this word, upamine, literally means to remain under or endure. It carries with it the idea of steadfastness, especially as God enables the believer to remain or endure under the challenges that he allots in life. And so this word carries with it this idea of enduring difficulty, right? It's not like just 
kind of enduring like boredom. It's enduring difficulty. And then for the word race, we have this Greek word, which is pronounced agon, agon. And this word agon is the root word of our English word for agony or agonize, which should give us a hint about where this is going. It should tell you a little something about the race that we're supposed to run. Now, in the Greek word, it is properly understood as a contest or a struggle or a grueling conflict, like a fight. In fact, in Acts chapter 1, I mean, excuse me, in fact, in uh, 1 Timothy uh, 6, uh, 6 12, the same word is used when Paul says um, that he, he talks about fighting the good fight of faith. Right? The idea is that it's a grueling struggle, it's a fight. So putting these two words together, what Paul says when he says, let us run with endurance the race that's said before us, what he's saying is, let us follow God no matter what comes our way. Let us run, let us strive, let us compete, let us give our very best with endurance, with steadfastness. Let us not give in, let us not give up. Let us run with endurance the race, the agonizing, grueling contest before us. That's what he's saying. Now understand what Paul didn't say here. He didn't say, put your trust in Jesus and everything will get magically better. That's not what he said. He didn't say, put your trust in Jesus and all your problems will disappear, right? He didn't say, put your trust in Jesus and and you will never suffer again. He didn't say, put your trust in Jesus and live your best life today, okay? He didn't say that. He says, put away the guilt, put away the sin and run with steadfastness and endurance right? The grueling race ahead of you because it's going to be hard. It will be difficult. You will be persecuted. You will suffer. People are going to hate you for your faith. People are going to make fun of you. People are going to call you names like bigot and Jesus freak and homophobe and religious nut job. People are going to to sue you for your beliefs. People are going to make you feel like you're not welcome. People are going going to use the culture against you. People are going to make you feel like nobody wants you. But Paul says we need to endure the race. We need to continue to fight the good fight, even when the odds seem to be stacked against us. Even when the whole world seems to disagree with you about how you understand the truth. Even when those who are close to you are pressuring you to turn back and either to deny Christ or deny the truth about him and his word. Christianity is not for those who are looking for the easy way out. Christianity is not for those who are looking for God to make them wealthy. Christianity is not for those who are looking to God to give them happiness all the days of their lives. Christianity is for those who understand that the only real hope that they have in this world is Christ. The ones who understand that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life, and they will do whatever they have to do to follow him. So Paul says, let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, And number four, he says, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Paul says we're able to keep our eyes fixed on Christ. We run the race with endurance, keeping our eyes on Christ because he is our prize. He is the founder or the author of our faith. Now, many English translations call him the pioneer of our faith. And and this is actually a very good rendering of the Greek word because the Greek word is uh, or hegos, which literally means the first to lead. That's what it means. 
He's the first in a long procession, a file leader who pioneers the way for many other followers. See, the word doesn't strictly mean author, but rather a person who is the originator or a founder of a movement and continues on as its leader, a pioneering leader, a founding leader. We look to Jesus because he blazed the trail for us to follow. He lived the life that we couldn't live. We look to Jesus because he is the one who made a way for us. It also says that he is the perfecter of our faith, not just the pioneer. Some translations say he's the finish of our faith. The Greek word here is teliates. Uh, teliates, and it means perfecter. And it means one who has in his own person kind of raised faith to perfection and set before us the highest example of faith. Jesus is the perfect example of faith. He's the one who made faith perfect. He is the example that we need to follow. Christ cut a trail for us to follow, and then he gives us a perfect example to emulate. That is why we keep our eyes fixed on him. John Piper once wrote, our motivation for running our race comes from looking straight ahead at Jesus. He finished the same race of human life, only he never sinned. And so his race was perfect. When he finished the race, he finished our salvation. So we run looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. When, when Jesus said, it is finished, and he died on the cross, right? he crossed that finish line for us. He became the finisher of our faith. The resurrection was the elevation of that one perfect finisher to the podium called the right hand of the throne of God. John continues and says, this is where we look as we run, not to the side, but straight ahead through the finish line of death to the exalted one for his perfect race. We run with our eyes fixed on Christ. He is he's the prize, the example. Now notice <clears throat> what Paul says here. He says, let us run with endurance the race, this grueling agonizing race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And notice here he says, for who the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Christians, you need to understand what we're looking at when we look to Jesus as an example. In the article titled, Enduring when obeying hurts, John Piper wrote this. What faith performs is something unspeakably hard. And his book, The Miracle on the River Kwai, Ernest Gordon, tells a true story of a group of POW workers on the Burma Railway during World War II. At the end of each day, the tools were collected from the work party, and on one occasion, a Japanese guard shouted that a shovel was missing, and he demanded to know which man had taken it, and he began to rant and rave, working himself up into a paranoid fury, and ordered whoever was guilty to step forward, and no one moved. All die! All die! He shouted, cocking and aiming his rifle at the prisoners. And at that moment, one man stepped forward and the guard clubbed him to death with a rifle while he stood silently at attention. When they returned to camp, the tools were counted again and no shovel was missing. John asks, what can sustain the will to die for others when you're innocent? Jesus was carried and sustained in his love for us by the joy 
that was set before him. He banked on a glorious future, blessing and joy, and that carried and sustained him in love through his suffering. Woe to us if we think we should or can be motivated and strengthened for radical, costly obedience by some higher motive than the joy that's set before us. When Jesus called for costly obedience that would require sacrifice in this life, he said in Luke chapter 14, 14, you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, or you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. In other words, be strengthened now in all of your losses for Christ's sake because of the joy set before you. He says that Peter said, When Jesus suffered without retaliating, he was leaving us an example to follow. And that includes Jesus' confidence in the joy set before him. He handed his cause over to God and did not settle accounts with retaliation. He banked his hope on the resurrection and all the joys of reunion with his Father and the redemption of his people. And so should we. Christianity is not for those who are looking for God to make their life perfect right here, right now. Christianity is not for those who are looking for God to satisfy their every whim like a cosmic butler. Christianity is not for those who think that the purpose of this life is to be happy. The Christian faith is for those who believe that the purpose of this life is to glorify God. And that following Jesus isn't about happiness in this life, but rather it's about the joy that is set before us. You see, the Hebrew Christians, if they were living for the momentary happiness that they could have had, they would have been easily persuaded to turn back on Christ because following Christ was a grueling race and it cost them something. It cost them their friends. It cost them their families. It cost them businesses. It cost them their, their, their finances. It cost them countrymen. It cost many of them even their own lives. But they all followed Jesus because of the joy that was set before them. The promise of the resurrection. The promise that one day it will all be made right. Where we will live in the life-giving presence of Jesus our Savior forever. Where we will not only saved from the penalty of sin or just the power of sin, but also permanently saved from the presence of sin, where there will be no more pain and no more sorrow and no more death and no more tears, but there will be only be hope and joy forevermore. That's why they followed. That's why they kept their faith. Well, today there's exactly the same kind of dilemma, though no one's trying to kill us for our faith, at least in our country right now. We're continu- but we are continually bombarded by our culture to trade in the joy that's set before us for the comforts of this world today. We're continually promised happiness, fulfillment, acceptance, and tolerance if we will but reject the gospel or at least water it down to where it loses all of its meaning. The world gives us, the world tells us, give up your exclusive claim to God and you can still be Christians, but the world will love you. The world tells us, give up your dogmatic stance on what the Bible says about who Jesus is and and about the Bible being the word of God or what the Bible says about marriage or or ethics. Give those things up and you still can be a Christian and the world will love you and you, revere you and call you tolerance. But I ask you, brothers and sisters, where does your hope lie? Is it in the momentary embrace of this fickle world? 
Or is it the permanent joy found only in the author and the perfecter of our faith? Will you lay down your burdens and will you lay aside your sin? Will you run the race with endurance? Right? Will you not look to the world but to Jesus as the example of your life? Will you stand strong in your faith regardless of what the world brings to you? Your faith in God is real. The object of your faith is rock solid. And your faith draws you into the life-giving presence of God himself. And your faith urges you on to keep your eye on Christ, following him for the joy, for the overwhelming joy that is before you. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, help us to continue to be sober minded about what our faith calls us, calls us to do. Because, Lord, it is really easy to praise your name when the sun is shining. It is really easy to say, praise the Lord when things are going my way. It's really easy to say, praise Jesus when I didn't get the ticket. But the reality is, is our life isn't made only of those moments. We live in a fallen, broken world, and there is no promise that in this world and this time that we will live without suffering. In fact, you've promised that those who try to live godly lives will suffer at some point. You said even in your word that in this world, you will have trouble. And so, Father, our hope can't be in those things then. Our, our, our hope in you can't be for those things. Yes, you bless us, Lord. Yes, you take care of us. Yes, we pray for things and we see you do those things. And yes, you're the Father who loves to give good gifts to his children, as your word says. Yes, we trust you for those things. But at the same time, we know you're sovereign and in control. And we know that if you allow us to suffer, it is for a reason. Your word says that all things work together for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. So everything works together for our good and ultimately for your glory. So help us to walk in that, Lord. And help us to never, ever deviate and never misplace our hope. Our hope is not in finances. Our hope is not in relationships. Our hope is not in our friends. Our hope is not in who wins elections. Our hope is not in the economy. Our hope is in the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, proving that he is God in the flesh, and that he will do what he promised to do, which is to rescue us from our sin and bring us into your presence forever and ever and ever and ever. Father, let us hold on to that. Let us Remember that and let us preach that as we go out and we share the hope of Christ with our community and our world. And I just beg you, Lord, raise up a people in this church who are brave enough and bold enough to walk out of here and go tell somebody else about your amazing son. We love you, Lord God, and we praise you for your glorious truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.